Well, it was Martin Luther who rightly wrote, If you want to understand the Christian message, you must start with the wounds of Christ. The cross of Jesus is indeed the crux of Christianity. In fact, this term crux, we use it so often, it's actually from the word crucifixion. And outside of the four gospel accounts, the Christian gospels, there is no clearer account of Messiah's crucifixion than here in Isaiah chapter 53. Realize that the Hebrew prophet Isaiah was writing 700 years in advance of Calvary. That's 200 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. That's 500 years before it was employed by Rome. And yet Isaiah paints an amazingly vivid and detailed prophetic account of all that Jesus would endure to take away our sin. To read this chapter without a, without, with a dry eye is an indication of a cold heart. Isaiah 53 is some emotional footage. In fact, this passage from the Jewish Scriptures is so obviously Christian in its message that later unbelieving Jews conspired to eliminate it from their Bibles. Ashkenazi, or European Jews, actually omitted chapter 53 from their editions of Isaiah. Sephardic or Oriental Jews retained it, but they tried to explain it away by relating it to the nation Israel rather than to a personal Messiah. And yet God refuses to let his people ignore Isaiah's testimony. For today, in the Givat Ram neighborhood there in Jerusalem, at the very heart of the city and the modern state, right across the street from the Israeli Knesset, their parliament building, there is a unique structure known as the Shrine of the Book. It stands as part of the Israeli Museum. Its white dome is shaped like a lid on an ancient ceramic jar. Two-thirds of the building is below ground. And the Shrine of the Book holds probably the most important archaeological discovery of all time, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and in particularly, the Isaiah Scroll. On display at the Shrine of the Book is the oldest Old Testament manuscript in our possession. A complete copy, an intact copy of the prophecy of Isaiah dating back to 200 B.C. It's proof that the Bible we read today has been passed down to us faithfully and reliably for at least the last 2,000 years. And right there in the middle of the Isaiah scroll you will find chapter 53. It's there for the world to see and to read and to study. And today you even have access to it online. Go home and Google it and look it up. At the heart of the Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, at the very center of the Jewish nation, God has implanted undeniable biblical evidence that what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary was Yahweh's timeless remedy for the sin of his people. Well, last time we ended in chapter 52, verse 12, and tonight we'll resume in verse 13. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. On occasion in Isaiah, God refers to Israel as his servant, but here the subject is not the nation, but a person. Here he uses personal pronouns throughout. God did indeed or intend for Israel to serve him. That was God's original plan. He planned on Israel to be a light to the nations, to take salvation to the Gentiles. But the Jews, of course, rebelled. They rejected their Messiah, and God sent another servant to take their place. In Isaiah 9, Jesus is called a light to the Gentiles. Jesus succeeded where Israel had failed. And Isaiah says that he'll be exalted and extolled and be very high. The Hebrew word translated extol, it means to lift up. It certainly means that he'll be praised, but it could mean more. Do you remember Numbers chapter 21? The nation had sinned. God had sent a plague. Poisonous snakes slithered into the camp. Their bite was lethal. When the Jews repented of their sin and cried out to God for help, he made a remedy for them. 
He told Moses to forge a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. You see, brass is a metal that retains heat, but it doesn't melt. Thus, it was a perfect symbol for God's judgment. For God gets angry, but his anger doesn't consume. The serpent was a symbol of sin. Thus, the bronze serpent spoke of God's judgment against sin. And when Moses lifted up this bronze serpent, and the people looked on it and believed, they were healed of the poisonous venom. And it was Jesus, our Lord, who used this Old Testament story as an analogy in John chapter 3. For there Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The bronze serpent was a picture of the cross of Christ. For at the cross, sin was judged. Just before Jesus died, you remember his words? He uttered, it is finished. The penalty of sin had been paid in full. Now all that needed to be done for us to be saved is to look on Jesus, on that pole, with the eye of faith, and to believe. In the days of the westward, westward wagon trains, one of the great dangers facing the settlers were the sudden prairie fires that would sweep across the landscape. The fires were impossible to outrun, but it didn't take long for travelers to learn how to combat these fires. They would burn a circle near their camp, and then they would move their camp inside the circle. Since their new camp had already been burned, the wildfire would rage around their circle. But there was nothing in it to catch fire. So as long as they abided in that circle, they were safe. And this is now true for us of Jesus. In him, sin has already been judged. Thus, if we stay in Christ, there's nothing for God to judge in us. We have been forgiven. By faith in Christ, we are safe and we are saved. And then he says, verse 14, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now, the King James translators, they were good and godly men. They were devoted to the inerrancy of Scripture. But on occasion, they softened the text to cater to more refined sensibilities. And here's a good example. Hebrew scholars Kyle and Delich, they actually translate verse 14 a little more harshly. They put it, just as many were astonished at thee, so disfigured, his appearance was not human, and his form not like that of the children of men. It seems that before and on the cross, Jesus was beaten literally beyond recognition. It wasn't just that they couldn't identify him as Jesus, but the onlookers couldn't even pick out human features. The beatings and the tortures that Jesus endured reduced his body to a quivering mass of bloody tissue. Like a boxer's face after a 15-round slugfest, or the face of a passenger thrown through a car windshield in a head-on collision, his face and his body were torn and tethered. Hey, if there had been a funeral, it would have been closed casket. As we noted from chapter 50, verse 6, Isaiah says that the Romans literally ripped out his beard. That's a detail that not even the Gospels give us. This might be why some of his disciples were slow to recognize Jesus after his resurrection. You see, not only did Jesus' hands and feet still retain the scars of crucifixion, why wouldn't his face and his brow also retain those scars? It's interesting to me how John sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, when he gets to heaven, he sees Jesus, the resurrected Christ, but he still bears those scars. He writes, a lamb as though it had been slain. That's how he saw Jesus. You know, you and I could be in, a, in for a shock one day. We could be in for a real surprise. Our first look into the face of Jesus may just cause us to shudder in horror. We may just see his scars. Reminds me of the little girl whose mom was severely disfigured. As she got older, she hated her mom for the embarrassment that she caused. 
friends at school would make fun of her and call her mom a monster, scoff whenever she appeared. One day, though, her mom explained to her the reason for those scars. Very early, years ago, the house had caught on fire, and this mom had raced through the flames in order to save her little girl. Well, from that moment on, this young lady was never again embarrassed by her mother's scars. In fact, they became a source of great pride. You know, our first look into the face of the Savior may shock us, but once we process the meaning of those scars, oh my, they'll become our greatest treasure. They'll become tokens of His grace and reminders of His love, His love for us. And so shall He sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at Him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. There'll be a universal surprise when we look into the face of Jesus. No one will be prepared for that initial look. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. People will be surprised. And notice here, Jesus will sprinkle many nations. You remember when Israel accepted the old covenant, Moses sprinkled the people with the sacrificial blood. This is also what Jesus does when we embrace the new covenant. Hebrews 10 verse 22 tells us that Christ sprinkles us and cleanses our evil conscience. Moses sprinkled only the Jews, but here the sprinkling of Jesus covers many nations. How cool is that? And then chapter 53, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Look into a night sky, gaze at the galaxies and the vast frontiers of space. They show off the glory of God. It's His handiwork, the psalmist says, or quite literally the word means His finger work. In other words, God created all of that you see, the cosmos around us. He created it with one hand. As the old country preacher put it, God created the heavens and earth without half trying. It's true. To us, creation is great and glorious. But you know, to God, creation is mundane work. The placement of the stars, the fashioning of the universe is a small task to the Almighty. But when God embarked on his work of salvation, this is when he rolled up his shirt sleeves. For this was not mere finger work. But as Isaiah says, the arm of the Lord was revealed. What we're about to read, the cross of Christ, was no small task. The Bible covers the creation of the heavens and the earth in just a few short chapters, but the story of redemption fills the whole book and shows us God's priorities. Realize, unbelieving Jews are not the only people who have attacked the credibility of the prophecy of Isaiah. Liberal scholars have also liked to cast doubt on the trustworthiness of Scripture. They're bothered by the miraculous nature of Isaiah's prophecies. They, they scratch their head and they think, how could anyone have spoken so vividly about Jesus some 700 years beforehand? And thus, to discredit the supernatural element of the prophecy, they've suggested that there, were, that there were actually two Isaiahs. Chapters 1 through 39 supposedly was written by the historical Isaiah, while chapters 40 to 66, those that dealt more specifically with Christ, were written by a later Isaiah who lived after the time of Jesus. Of course, there are a lot of ways to debunk this theory. One, of course, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the easiest way is to point to John chapter 12, verse 38. For there Jesus quotes this verse I've just read, Isaiah 53, verse 1. And in tandem, he quotes an earlier verse, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. One from the earlier section, one from the later section, and then he links them together by saying, Isaiah said again, <laughs> It's clear in the mind of Jesus it was the same Isaiah in control of the pen through all 66 chapters of the book. That means that if you believe Jesus, well, then you got to believe there was just one Isaiah. 
And of course, if you don't believe Jesus, you got bigger problems than who wrote Isaiah. Notice verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. These pictures relate back to Isaiah 11 verse 1 where Messiah is called the branch. That he is a sprout from the family tree of David. Notice a root out of dry ground. This refers to the barrenness of Jesus' upbringing. You know, in the first century, the Romans had reduced the heirs of David to paupers, not princes. In addition, the Jewish hierarchy at the time was corrupt. The religious establishment had become hypocritical. It was a barren time, a dry time in many, many ways. But Jesus was a fresh sprout, a tender plant, out of dusty ground. It's amazing. The world's prettiest flower came from its ugliest era. And then we're told he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Form refers to a person's profile. Comeliness means beautiful or striking features. And here, apparently, Jesus was not what anyone would have called handsome. Now, that doesn't mean that I believe Jesus was ugly. (laughs) I personally believe he was just average looking. He was just nondescript. He's an ordinary looking guy. There was nothing about his appearance that would attract us to him. He had a face and features that, that really blended into the crowd. I have a book at home. It's called the Archco Volume. It's a collection of manuscripts that were actually found in the back of the Vatican Library. Supposedly, it is the official Sanhedrin records at the time of Christ. And in it, there is a purported interview where the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel speaks to Mary and Joseph. And here is an excerpt from that interview that gives a physical description of Jesus' appearance. Are you interested? I bet. Now, let me qualify what I'm about to read by saying the Archco volume is far from trustworthy. Its origins are spurious. A lot of conjecture, but it's pretty fun. So here is its description of Jesus and what he might have looked like. He is the picture of his mother, only he has not her smooth round face. His hair is a little more golden than hers, though it is as much from sunburn as anything else. He is tall, and his shoulders are a little drooped. His visage is thin and of a swarthy, that is a dark, dusky kind of complexion, though this is from exposure. His eyes are large in a soft blue and rather dull and heavy. The lashes are long and his eyebrows very large. His nose is that of a Jew. In fact, he reminds me of an old-fashioned Jew in every sense of the word. And it's that last line that fits with Isaiah's prophecy. An old-fashioned Jew. Jesus was an ordinary, an average-looking guy. Now, a more biblical portrait of the appearance of Jesus is found in the analogy of the Old Testament tabernacle. You remember that the book of Hebrews tells us that every feature of that tabernacle speaks to us of Jesus. And you remember its structure. Its core structure was made out of cedar and gold and linen, beautiful things but it was overlaid with badger skins, dark, ugly leather. And thus, when you approached the tabernacle from a distance, there was nothing about its appearance that would attract you or impress you. It was only from the inside of the tabernacle that you could see the cedar and the gold and the linen, and you could admire its beauty and its glory. And wasn't this the case with Jesus? From the outside, he was just a common man. There was nothing spectacular about his visage, Isaiah says. But when you watched his character, when you heard the truth that this man spoke, your attitude changed. This man is something glorious. This is something wonderful here. And you know, the same is true with Christianity. It's foolish until you meet Christ. It's once you discover Jesus, His love, His grace, His truth, His beauty, that's when your heart becomes locked to it forever. Verse 3 tells us more about Jesus. He is despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. John 1 verse 11 picks up on this theme. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus was rejected by the people he had come to save. He was rejected by the Jews. You remember first century Jews, they were looking for political liberation. But Jesus forced them to look inward at the corruption of their own hearts. It was spiritual freedom that they needed. He desired to forgive. He desired to set them free spiritually. But they grieved him, did they not? Over and over they grieved him by their reactions to him. You remember, it came to a climax in Matthew chapter 24 when from on top of the Mount of Olives, looking out over the city, Jesus, he cried out and he said, How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I don't think he was just thinking about his earthly ministry when he said that, but the eons passed from his perch in heaven, how often he had desired to bring the people to him, but they were not willing. He agonized over the rebelliousness of his people. Jesus came into the world. He was born day one, a man of sorrows. From the outset, he was a stranger in a strange land. He felt resistance and hostility from his first day on the planet. The prophet Haggai referred to the Messiah as the desire of all the nations. And yet his very own people did not esteem him. We're told, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And here's the most stunning phrase in a chapter full of stunning phrases. He was smitten by God. The Jews hit him, we know that. He was beaten by the Romans, that's well documented. But notice these words, smitten by God. The Father in heaven struck His only Son? Was this divine child abuse? Yet on the cross, God vented His anger. His anger toward your sin and my sin onto His only Son, Jesus. Jesus stood in our place as punishment for our sin. It was all necessary according to divine justice. You know, often we sing that song, I really like it, I'm accepted because He was forsaken. You remember that song? Well, that's great theology. The law said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hanging on that Roman cross was a sign that he had been rejected by God so that you and I could be forgiven and accepted. Verse 5 continues, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Notice the words that Isaiah uses. Wounded. He was wounded for our transgressions. Wounded means pierced or perforated. You know, Jesus' body was actually punctured in seven places. In his brow, from the crown of thorns. On his back, from the scourging. In his hands and in his feet, from the nails. And then in his side, from the Roman spear. You know, in Scripture, the number seven is the number of completion. Thus, even his scars, his seven scars, prove that our sin was paid in full, that all that needed to be done had been done for us to be saved on the cross of Jesus Christ. And then notice this word bruised. It means beaten to pieces. You remember the Jews, they struck his face with the palm of his hand, their hands. His chastisement was the formal scourging. The Romans used a leather strap embedded with bits of metal or ivory or bone. And every time that whip was cracked, the jagged chunks of metal would dig into his skin, tearing away his flesh, eventually churning up the muscle underneath. The Roman scourging scourging was known as the halfway death. Some victims never made it to the cross. You You know, whenever we take communion, just a little something I do. I always make myself chew and grind up the bread. I always always make a point of, of grinding that bread between my teeth, for it reminds me, it causes me to remember the crushing that the body of Jesus endured for you and me.
He was literally grinded and chewed up. It's been said, what God's justice demanded, God's love provided. You know, the Son of God could have been born in the era of the guillotine or the firing squad or lethal injection, something more humane. But no, God subjected His only Son to crucifixion, the most torturous form of execution ever devised. For that's what our sin deserved. You see, why did the Father choose the cross? Well, there are at least two reasons. First, it showed the severity of mankind's sin, that Jesus took what we deserved. But second, it was also to demonstrate the extremes of God's love. This is how much He cares. It's been said in the cross of Christ, excess in men is met by excess in God. Excess of evil is mastered by excess in love. And then notice one more word here in verse 5, stripes. By his stripes we are healed. The lacerations that occurred from the scourging were the stripes he bore on his back. What caused Jesus terrible pain has become our healing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 picks up on this. It says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By his stripes you were healed. You see, both physical and spiritual healing was paid for on the cross. Understand, Jesus' stripes have purchased great treasure. But this doesn't mean that bodily healing is as accessible to us as is the forgiveness of sin. I mean, you can just ask God tonight and He will forgive you of your sin through Jesus Christ. We can't say the same about healing. Just ask and you'll be healed. Well, perhaps you will, but maybe you won't. God is sovereign over our healing. You see, on the cross, Jesus paid for everything involved in our redemption. Realize, on the cross, Jesus paid for streets of gold. He paid for the healing of the nations. He paid for a redeemed and restored world. Everything that is involved in the redemption was paid for on the cross. But when we cash in on these blessings is a matter of God's timing. Do you get streets of gold right now? No. We got asphalt streets in Loganville. And likewise with our healing. Today is the day of salvation. God may or may not choose to heal us today. He may not heal us until we get to heaven. But when it does happen, here or or then, we will know that it was paid for by the stripes of His Son Jesus. And then verse 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's a verse that says it all. Notice it begins and ends with the word all. All we like sheep. You know that sheep are notoriously stupid. You know that, don't you? They tend to wander off. They stray from the fold. Realize, you don't have to be a blatant and a rowdy person to be a sinner. Like a dumb sheep, you can just wander off. You, you can just allow your curiosity to take the best of. You can venture out on your own. Before you know it, you're trapped and you're in need of your shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray. But verse 6 mentions two sheep. The one who goes astray, but then Isaiah also speaks of the scapegoat. He says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was part of the ritual practiced on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement when the sin of the nation was forgiven. Leviticus 16 instructs the high priest to select two goats. One is to be offered as a sacrifice, but the other is to be taken out to the edge of the camp on the border of the wilderness. The priest would then lay his hands on the head of that lamb and he would confess the sins of the people. And then they would turn that goat loose to wander off into the desert. And they would see their sin literally 
walking away from them, being taken from them, from the camp. He was called the scapegoat. Today we use that word, don't we? It's a cliche. It's the person who takes the blame. That's the scapegoat. But this is what Jesus did for us. He took the blame for our sin, and he paid its price. This is what we mean when we talk about the vicarious or the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Our sin was laid on Jesus. He died in our place. He became our proxy. As the poet writes, Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I have not died. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. This is what we've done on Jesus. This is our salvation. And then verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Now it's interesting. This was the text that appears in Acts chapter 8. This was the passage that the Ethiopian on the road to Gaza was reading when Philip was instructed by the Holy Spirit to approach him and preach Jesus to him. Remember that African dignitary had gone to Jerusalem in search of salvation. He desired to know the true God. And God's providence had him reading Isaiah 53. Oh, it was a tremendous lead-in for Philip to jump up on the chariot and preach Jesus to the guy. In this passage, we're told, he opened not his mouth. Before the Sanhedrin, Jesus kept silent like a sheep before his shears, like a lamb that had been led to slaughter. When the Jews accused Jesus falsely in front of Pilate, the Roman governor asked him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Matthew 27 verse 14 tells us, And he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Jesus didn't attempt to, attempt to defend himself. He did nothing to try to elude the cross. This was his mission. He was already nailed to it. He was born to die. His crucifixion had not, been predicted, had not only been predicted by the prophets like Isaiah, but it had been decreed from the very foundations of the world. And they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He died for our sins and our crimes, not his own. Hebrews 7 verse 26 refers to Jesus as the holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners sacrifice. Even Judas said that his blood was innocent. Thus, though Jesus suffered a criminal's death, he was placed in a rich man's tomb. And you remember his name. That rich man was a Jewish aristocrat, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Of course, there's a great joke I can't resist. When Joseph asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, Pilate was surprised. He said, man, why in the world would you give your new tomb to a bury a criminal? Joseph responded, Oy vey, he only needs it for the weekend. That's pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. Only needs it for the weekend. Verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Again, this is so astonishing to me. In, in reference to the crucifixion, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The crucifixion of Jesus was not something that had gone haywire in the halls of heaven. This was not a tragic outcome in God's view or a shock to God or a good idea spoiled or a defeat at the hands of Satan. Oh, no. The crucifixion had been ordained by God. It sounds strange, but it was true. It pleased the Lord. He says, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Why did Jesus endure the crucifixion? Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And here we're told what that joy was. First, it was his seed. Or or he had his eyes on the fruit of his sacrifice. The offspring of his salvation. Who is that? That's you. That's me. We're the reason he endured the cross. Second, he had in, in his sights the prolonging of his days. Death did not defeat Jesus. Three days later, he rose from the dead. His days were prolonged. And then third, he went to the cross, for the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus knew that after his crucifixion and his resurrection, he would be raised to God's right hand. He would be vindicated and exalted, and he would take his rightful place on the throne in heaven. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And you and me, we're in that word many. We're among the many who've been justified by Jesus. Notice how Isaiah, though, speaks of the cross. Of Jesus, it said, his soul was an offering for sin. And then he says here, he talks about the labor of his soul. Realize, Jesus not only offered up his body on the cross, but he also offered up his soul. His soul was sacrificed. He died not just physically, but spiritually. You remember Jesus' agonizing cry from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Literally, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus became separated from his Father in heaven in a mysterious way that our minds can't plumb. God broke fellowship with God. Jesus never ceased being God, but somehow a separation in the Godhead occurred. When my son Zach was two years old, he came down with a major infection. We had to admit him into the hospital, and we had to feed him some antibiotics through the IV, had to get it into his system quickly. And just before they installed the tube, the nurse told me that I should go back down to the room and wait until they were done. It'd be easier for me. Well, Kathy knew what was coming. She's a nurse. She complied. But I couldn't leave. I mean, I stayed right by the door. I wanted to be right as close as I could to my little buddy. And I'll never forget that moment. Because right inside that door, I was standing out in the hall behind the door, and right inside, Zach was laying down on the bed, two years old. He didn't know what was going on. They were just sticking him with pins and needles. And I'll never forget, he started crying, just screaming at the top of his lungs, Daddy, I want my daddy. Where's my daddy? I could have clawed through that door with my fingernails. I could have grabbed that door and jerked it off its hinges. But I stayed outside that door. For my son's sake, for I knew what was best. And I'll never forget that moment. For God spoke to me that moment in that hospital hall as clearly as he's done at any point in my life. God said to me, now, Sandy, now you know what I endured for you. When my son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus said, I want my daddy, I want my daddy. God heard the cries of his son, and yet he too stayed behind the door. And why? So that you and so that I could be saved. Is that amazing? That's amazing grace. The earth shook. The sun stopped shining. The day became dark as God the Father forsook God the Son just long enough for you and I to be pardoned and accepted. And now we know how much God really loves us. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, And he was numbered with the transgressors. You know, the gospel points out that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. 
Or as Isaiah puts it, he was numbered with the transgressors. Which reminds me of the old preacher. He was dying. He asked the nurse if, he would, if she would go and call his congressman and his senator. Have them visit so he could die in peace. Well, she went, she made the arrangements, but later she had to ask him. She said, hey, he said, why, why would having your senator and your congressman by your side bring you great peace in your death? The pastor said, oh, now I can die like my Lord Jesus between two thieves. <laughs> and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And this is Jesus' ministry today. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He knows what we need, and He's praying for us. And as we leave Isaiah 53, hopefully there is a bit of a tear in our eye. How can there not be when we stand at the cross and realize what God endured to see us saved? But the tone changes in chapter 54. For Isaiah tells us to dry our eyes and now moisten our lips. His suffering is reason for our singing. Our weeping gives way to joy. Chapter 54 begins. Sing, O barren, you who, have, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. And those words might sound familiar to you. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 27, Paul quotes this passage, but he gives it an interesting application. He compares God's people to a married woman. Israel in the Old Testament was married to the Old Covenant. They were married to the law of Moses, to the do's and don'ts, to the rules and rituals, while the church is married to a new covenant in Christ. The Old Covenant required Israel to labor and labor and labor some more. I mean, none of you, husband, none of you uh, husbands can relate to this, but imagine having a wife that's always pestering you, always wanting you to do more and more and more and more, nagging you constantly. And none of you can relate to that, understand that, but just imagine it for a moment. I mean, this was the Old Covenant. This was what it was like to be under the Old Covenant, to be married to this kind of woman. Labor, 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 more, more, more. This was what the Old Covenant was about. And yet the Jews remained barren to God. She had few followers. No one could sustain this pace. Whereas the church rests in Christ. We've gotten off of this religious treadmill of trying to measure up. We're loved unconditionally. We've admitted our barrenness. We labor not. Yet we have more offspring. We're more fruitful than the Jews ever dreamed. It's because Jesus has done the work for us. The new covenant takes the pressure off of us, off of us to perform, and it puts it on Jesus to fulfill his promises as we trust in him. And then we're told, enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. For 1,900 years, Israel has been an isolated, barren, dwindling population. Even today, the Jews possess just a fraction of the land that God promised them. And yet one day, when Messiah rules in Israel, she will inherit the nations. He'll rebuild the desolate cities, and Israel will expand its territory. And you know, in a spiritual way, I think this notion also applies to us, the church. For if we trust in the gospel of grace, God will enlarge our tent. He'll strengthen our stakes. Expansion and stability will become our trademarks. And then he says, do not fear, for you, shall, you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced. For you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Boy, isn't that a great promise. We'll be able to forget the shame of our youth. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. You know, the ancient deities 
the idols that the people were tempted to worship. They were always local deities. The Baals were the Baal of Phoenicia or the Baal of this or the Baal of that. But the one true God, notice this, He is the God of the whole earth. He doesn't just reign over one jurisdiction. All the universe is His footstool. And then notice, your maker is your husband. What a beautiful thought this is. Your maker is your husband. Do do you understand what this means? That the creator of the heavens and earth wants an intimate love relationship with the people that he's created? He's our maker, but he's our husband. He loves us, and he wants that relationship with us. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife, when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God had forsaken Israel for a mere moment. With a little wrath, he hid his face. Well, there were times in the Old Testament when Israel needed to be punished for her sin. And whenever a wake-up call was needed, hey, God provided. But it was always for a mere moment. Israel endured a little wrath, lest she be abandoned forever and be forced to endure an eternity full of God's wrath. And you know, this could also be said of the years since 70 A.D. That God has again forsaken Israel for a little while with a little wrath. Why? To turn them back to Him forever. Compared to eternity and to hellfire, even 2,000 years, even two millenniums of suffering is viewed as a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, this is how Paul says that we as Christians should view the sufferings of our lives. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. You know, whenever I read that passage, I think of Paul's, quote, light affliction, five times beaten by the Jews, three times by the Romans, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, That's what he calls a light affliction? I'd say that's a tough day at the office. And yet Paul calls it all light. He even says that it's momentary. Well, compared to eternity, it is. Compared to the glory that one day he'll be rewarded, it is. And it's similar to what God says here in Isaiah. It was a little wrath that lasted for a mere moment. Yet Paul's light affliction produced for him an eternal weight of glory. The eternal reward caused the temporal inconvenience to pale in comparison. And the same is true here in Isaiah. God's people Israel were forsaken for a moment, but they will be gathered with great mercies. She tasted a little wrath, but she'll be compensated with everlasting kindness. When God calls us to suffer, we won't lose heart if we can look on it from an eternal perspective. This is a hopeful passage for you and me. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. After God flooded the world in Noah's day, he set a rainbow in the sky. It was a token of his promise to never flood the earth again. And Isaiah says that God has set this same kind of precedent with Israel, that all of his judgments on Israel will be tempered with mercy, that his plagues are intended to purify, not punish forever. And here's a side note that we glean from these verses. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Noah's flood was a local catastrophe. Notice here, God makes it clear that the flood covered the whole earth. And then verse 10 For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest, 
and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Notice Israel is referred to as you afflicted one. And yet she sits on a foundation of precious, solid stones. She has a covenant of peace with God. He promises that she will never be removed. For a time, the nation is, quote, tossed by a tempest of trouble. But God will remain faithful to Israel. And here's another side note. When the storms have passed, and when Israel is solid on its foundation, I guess we can assume sometime in the kingdom age, the Lord will leave the affairs of state to us. And guess what he'll do? He'll teach the children. Isn't that what it tells us? What a wonderful thought. All your children will be taught by the Lord. Guess who will be in charge of children's ministry in the kingdom age? It'll be Jesus. And if children's ministry is the Lord's priority in the kingdom, wow, it certainly should rise up on our priority list here and now, shouldn't it? The Lord's going to give all of the adult duties to you and I. We'll be reigning and ruling with Christ. But He's the one who's personally going to be in charge of the children's ministry. He knows that's the real work. That's the great work. And that means that if you teach Sunday school, then you can know for sure that you're following in the footsteps of your Lord Jesus. And then verse 14 tells us, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. Again, God is speaking of the age when Jesus will return and reign over Israel. Her enemies will not prosper. God will create weapons for her defense. And no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Boy, for Israel today, threatened on every side, this would be a great comfort if the Jews just trusted in their God. But what applies to Israel physically usually has a spiritual parallel to the church, and here is no exception. You remember Jesus' wonderful promise? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No weapon formed against us will prosper. No judgment from this world will stick. As God protected Israel in former times, He will also protect us. As He protected Israel in the future, He will also protect us in the present. We can be assured of His defense. And there we have Isaiah chapters 52 through 54.